I need to ask you please to open your New Testaments to Ephesians chapter 1. I would like for us to begin with a reading starting in verse 19. There is a prayer here that the Apostle Paul has for all believers. It continues to be an important prayer for believers today in Texas, where I am from and preach, and up here in Arkansas and other places as well. It is our ability to realize the promises of this prayer that will carry you through every day in faith. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is a lot there, but I will tell you the one thing from that read this morning. Verse 19 promises power to faith. If you have faith in Jesus, the power of God will rest upon you. It may be the realization of his presence, which you've heard me talk about a little bit this weekend. It may be the feeling, sometimes literally so, of his hand upon your shoulder. Or it may be the gifts that he gives you by his love. But God gives power to faith. So it is so crucial that our young people in particular this weekend and all of us continue to live in complete trust in Jesus. But the world, the world is trying to pull them away. And we're going to talk about how it is that the world is tugging at our kids and how important it is that you stay completely assured of the presence of Jesus. I'm going to use a little spectrum here on the stage. I was asking around in the first hour, and apparently these are the sheep, and these, I guess, are goats, or these are sheep, or I said, we're on the right. No, we're, I don't know. Look, I had to pick one. But based on what you're looking at here, I'm going to say that over here is on the right. It is a position of complete realization of God. I am 100% sure that there is a God in heaven. I am absolutely assured that Jesus died for me. I think about him all the time. He's a part of everything that I am. This is where I want to be. This is where I want my children to be. And this is where you want to be as well. This is the only place to be. But the world doesn't want you here. It doesn't like the things you say when you're here. It doesn't like the things that you imply with your choices. And so the world is pulling. So way over here on the whole other side is this movement, a very excited movement. And all this movement wants to do is, first of all, whatever in the world it wants to do, number one. And then it wants to pull everybody else its direction. And we're going to talk about that movement and its effect on our kids today. And the best way to term it is all-out humanism. This is a humanistic side. Not you guys. You're great. You're cool. You're fine. 
But this is the left, and this is who they are. Now, I have to tell you, I've only been studying this word humanism for a few weeks, and I had these ideas of what a humanist is, and I was pretty much entirely wrong about that. Humanism can be very morally based. It can be excellent character people. But it stands for something that is very, very far apart from Christianity. Let me give you some definitions of humanism as we get going. Here is who they are. And as I read this, I'm interested to see if, if this rings a bell for you, for people that you know in this life, who are pretty good folks. A progressive philosophy of life that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. Now, do you see why they're on opposite sides of the stage? This is an absolute trust in the existence, presence, and power of God. This is an absolute belief that there is no God. There is nothing supernatural. There is no life after death. There's just you being a good person, doing what you think is right, and of course, recycling. Affirming the dignity of each human being. So they're not saying, these aren't awful people. They're just saying, yeah, human beings are important. It supports the maximization, here we go, here we go, the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity consonant with social and planetary responsibility, the, the Green New Deal. But look, this says, I am a slave of Jesus. He made me, he bought me, he owns me. This says, I'm a slave to no one. I have maximized individual liberty and answer to none bigger than myself and laws until I can get those laws changed. Attaching primary importance, of course, to the human, usually the individual, rather than the divine, that being the God of heaven. Seek solely rational ways. Now that, I take a little bit of a affront to that statement. I do not believe Christianity to be irrational. But their argument is, if you just think about you and human beings and the planet a little bit, you seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Have you been enamored with how irrational humanists are in the seek of rational ways? Because everybody does what's right in their own eyes. But anyway, this is the battle for your kids, for your children, and for you. You need to be over here to get to heaven. The world is pulling in this direction. And just in case you think I'm trying to dress this thing up and make them look bad, I got all this straight out of uh, magazines written by humanist organizations and websites. And I mean, there's their big logo, you know. It's American Humanist Association, good without a God. You know, they had to put A in there like your iPhone does when you try to do God. And it says A God one more time, Apple, one more time. It is not a God, he is God. Well, no, you know, it's good without these, you know, antiquated, simple ideas of a God. Now, look, you might be thinking about this, thinking, well, you know, I don't know why we need to talk about that extreme because we're not in any real danger of our kids leaving this for that. Well, first of all, you'd be wrong about that. You'd be wrong about that. I will say that there are not many raised in the church who leap all the way to the other side, but I could name some by name, and it happened rather quickly, because it is alluring to do whatever you want to do and to represent yourself first. And so if you know anyone thinking about this extreme, or if you're just interested in preserving your family against it, I believe we should be able to ask these people a question. They are by category, and I'm going to give you three categories today. 
This is the atheistic humanist. Does that make sense? Atheistic? You probably thought I was just going to say atheist over here. But it's humanism. It's me first, but they believe not in God. I think we should be willing to ask a question. Look, I see where you are over there. Okay, I know everything about you. But I just want to know, can we have a conversation about something? Is there a creator God? Can we just talk about that for a minute? If there is a creator God, this is absolute foolishness. If there is not a creator God, then this is foolishness. Can we have a conversation about that? Now, obviously, it's a lot like the great Bible class that was taught this morning. We can only hit on things. We can throw ideas out there. We can put topics. But if you've ever thought about just washing out of this whole Christ thing and going your own way, you need to ask yourself if there's a creator God, and you need to know a few things about that. Number one, to deny the existence of a creator God is to be scientifically moronic. It is to let all sound reason and observation go and to adopt the principle that all of this came from zero things, which is completely impossible. You know what the Bible says about that. Can we do a little bit of scripture reading early on here? How about the book of Psalms? You know exactly what the Bible says about this in Psalm 14. And I stand by this language because not even observable science would give ear to this. The Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He said they are corrupt. He kind of pulls back the veil on their argument here. They're corrupt. They have abominable, they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Peter talks about this too. You know why they deny the existence of God? Not because it makes any sense at all that there's no originator, but because it gives freedom to do what you want to do. And that's awful tempting for people. Turn over to Psalm 19. You're already close. Psalm 19, verse 1, all the while that we're claiming that all of this came from no thing, the heavens. And I love our modern technology, not afraid of science, not afraid, love the technology. We can see farther, we can observe more, we can gather more information, and we find with even louder volume than we thought the speakers had the possibility of achieving, the heavens even louder now are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Can we just have a, a logical conversation over here about how something could come from nothing? And by the way, it's incredibly beautiful, isn't it? We could talk about a hundred things here, probably a billion things. But I studied the stars recently. V.Y. Canis Majoris a.k.a. the big dog, Canis, dog, Majors. The size of it, the expanse of it, the place that it fits and what is around it. 46 billion light years in expanse from east to west with no end in sight. God is just showing off. He has shown that his power is so beautiful. Oh, by the way, you use 1.2 million nerve endings in your human eyeballs to observe it. So congratulations on those 1.2 million nerve endings you've got there. From the tiniest to the largest, God has proven his ability to make beautiful things. Open your Bibles to Romans 1. How do we deny 
design. You guys have seen all the stuff. You've seen the signature in the cell and all those different things from the largest to the smallest. We did a study one week of a VY Canis Majoris and, and the next one of the six feet of DNA in every one of your 40 trillion cells. It's just incredible from left to right. But here's how it's summed up scripturally in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are what? Without excuse. There is no scientific, spiritual, or historical excuse for that position. And then, this is another study in and of itself, but you're already in Romans, so it seemed fitting to put it here. Romans chapter 2, where do we get all this morality come from? Where do we get all this morality? Where did it come from? Where do we get this idea of right and wrong and, and caring for people and, and understanding the value of life? Well, Romans chapter 2 tells you that God put it in you. He created something that could not have come from nothing. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 12, it talks about the law for a little while. And then in verse 14, the Gentiles didn't even have the law, but they did instinctively the things of the law. Verse 15, they had this conscience within them bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Here's the point. We've got to move on. But if there's anybody in your family or anybody you know who ever says, I'm done with God, I'm done with all that, I'm just going to go out there and do what I want and be my own self, you need to say, you got to help me understand something first. Is there a creator God? And if you say no, I've got to hear three arguments from you to defend that choice. And there is no defense for denying the existence of our creator. None. So this made me curious. I thought... Do we ever have atheistic humanists over here who are really troubled by the ignorance of the underlying tenets of that position? You ever wondered that? Like, are there humanists going, I want to do what I want to do. I want to make it about me. I don't like that stuff over there. But man, I mean, look around. We've got a universe and design and something from nothing. So I went to Google and I just typed in two words. I didn't think anything was going to come up. I expected Google to kick, kick back. That was ignorant. Try again. Like, it's impossible. But I typed it in anyway, and it turns out it's a thing. Are you ready? From here, somebody says, I can't buy that. But you know what exists? One of those. I thought, surely, surely there's no such thing as a humanist, because it said good without a God. Surely there's not a humanist who believes that there is a God. And man, I found this interesting blog. This is lengthy blog from a couple years ago where this humanist came out and said, guys, I don't know what I am. That's how it opened. I don't know what to call myself because I'm totally a humanist, like totally. I think even the word like was in there, like totally. Totally humanist, totally. But how do you deny designer and creator? What am I? And someone came back and said, no, 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 you're good. You're a theist humanist. Well, that's convenient. I get to believe in no control perhaps no supernatural, I get to believe that God built us, turned around, and walked off, and the rest is totally up to you. First of all, I feel gypped by a God who would just turn and walk off and just have me die and be dead all over. But that's the belief. I got a question for this guy. Now, by the way, we're getting a little bit closer over there. The probability of one of the people in this building drifting from there to here is a little higher. It's a little higher than all the way over here. I got to ask him a question. Okay, so... I'm glad you believe in God. That's great. Can I just ask a second question? Is this God whom you believe in the God of the Bible? That's the next question. 
Because if he's not the God of the Bible, if he's just some creator God, then hey, I guess you're fine. You can stay here. But if the God in whom you believe is actually proven and authenticated in this book, this is no good. You can't be here. This is a, a defiance of everything that he says he is. He says he's a God who's involved. He says he's a God of love. He says he's a God of heaven. And you're denying all of that. Well, the answer, of course, is he is the God of the Bible. And there are lots of great ways that we can prove that. First of all, the Bible. And I really enjoyed the class today. I think you said something, John said something like, does this prove that those events took place? Well, you know, you can't prove anything unless you see it. If you want to go with that tight of a definition of proof. But I tell you what the Dead Sea Scrolls did. They proved that this is as old as it says that it is. They proved that, and they proved that it was believed as divine that long ago. That's two pretty big proofs along the way. Well, you guys know the story. You got Jacob here. He's a lot smarter than me and runs faster and farther and all that kind of good stuff. Younger. You've had all the sermons. You know that the God whom you can obviously see produced a book that even just the New Testament, you know all this already, that there are over 5,000 Greek copies dating back to the second, first century that authenticate the age and impact of that. There are 25,000 Latin copies, partial or complete, that authenticate its age and its impact. When you authenticate age and impact, you've done something. That not, there, there are very few people back then who just believed in this. They all believed that the Bible and the centuries. Can we talk about time here? The centuries have proven its power. I don't have time today to take you to Daniel chapter 2. But those Dead Sea Scrolls did a nice job of authenticating the age and impact of Daniel chapter 2. Where we saw this, this big statue. And there would be this kingdom and it would crumble. And this kingdom and it would crumble. And this one and it would crumble. And finally, a Roman, a fourth kingdom that would also crumble. But from it, the stone that struck it would become a mountain that would fill the whole earth. Hebrews 12, the mountain of God, the church, our life in Jesus. The authenticity of Scripture in historical account is great, but also the fact that it has retained its promise of an everlasting kingdom of Jesus and of life over time. And open your Bibles to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. The word connects God to you in Christ. And that's a big issue for our theistic humanists. We want to believe in God, maybe even in some blessings, but not Jesus. Not interested in that Jesus stuff because there's, you know, there's rules and mountain sermons and all that good stuff. Look, this word has established itself as a description of God. And this description of God points to Jesus and demands that you look there. In Hebrews chapter 1, you know this well. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, for instance, Daniel, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And he goes on to talk about how he died and was raised. So if you ever know anybody in your family who says, I'm not into the church thing, the Christ thing, the Bible thing. I just believe there's this divine person and it's all up to me. I just need to ask you something. What is your argument against the word of God? Because I've got historical documents, centuries of impact, 
and a focal point upon Jesus that has never been disproven or dismayed. This is illogical and error. Okay, so I went back to Google. I thought, okay, I'm pushing my luck. You can push your luck on Google, you know. I thought, okay, hard to believe that they're a theistic humanist, but I guess when I got to thinking about it, actually, they just don't call themselves that, but they're kind of everywhere. And then I thought, no, surely not. Surely not. I'm going to try it. John, surely not. I typed in two words, expecting it to return an error message, and there it was. Are you serious? Two words who by definition are entire opposites. Christian, Christ, God. So it's God, the Bible, Christ. Humanism, it's me, me. Dogs and PETA. How do you put the two together? It can't exist. But then I started to notice something. I read about it a little bit, and you already know what it means. It means... Uh, I get to believe in Jesus and sacrifice and heaven, but I also get to do everything I want to do. And then it hit me. I know tons of Christian humanists. Little Rock, Arkansas is full of Christians. They don't call themselves that. Lindell, Texas, by population, is well over half Christian. I meet Christian humanists all the time. Jesus, Jesus, God, Jesus. Church, nah. Adultery, no big deal. I see that all the time. It comes in different titles, but I'm encouraging you to try this title out for a while. So you're a Christian humanist then, excuse me. Go Google it. I mean, it's a thing, and you're it. It's coined differently today. You know what's one of the most popular coinages for this? Once saved, always saved. Christian humanist. I got a question for Christian humanists. And by the way, I would say we're standing at about this point now, Christian humanists. I'd say we're about here. What are the chances that people you care about in this church who you love are going to move from here to here? Happens all the time, doesn't it? Happens all. And who knows where it goes from there? So I'm going to finish with this. I don't know how much time I have left, nor do I really care. I'm leaving after this. What are you going to do? You can fire me after this? You got Phil Robertson coming next year. I'll never be asked back again, okay? I'm not worried about that. I got to ask you a question, my Christian humanist friend. I appreciate, hey, I appreciate where you are. You've given, that's foolishness over there. This is illogical. You're moving in the right direction, and you believe in Jesus, and that's awesome. But can I just ask you something? Is this Jesus just coming to love everybody and save everybody and shower, or is he coming to pass judgment? Judgment. We don't use terms like that anymore. Judgment. To determine that there are some who are right, and they're going to heaven, and there are some, like the demons who believe in Jesus and are not going to heaven. Is that possible? Christian humanist says, no, that's not possible. But what does the Bible say? The good thing about Mr. Christian humanist is he tends to have some respect for Scripture. That's a good place to start. I know this, John chapter 12. Would you look there with me in John 12? I know this. We really draw from this idea in John 12 that Jesus, when he was here the first time, when he was on this earth, he said, I'm not here to judge, I'm here to teach and educate, and I'll flip a couple tables every now and then, but basically, I'm just here to show you what God looks like. But here's what he said about the next time he comes, a little bit different. 
The next time he comes, he says, he who rejects me, John 12, 48, and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. I want to ask my Christian humanist, do you believe that? Do you believe that one day your Jesus is going to come back and you're going to be bowed down on your face in front of him and he's going to be sitting in his throne and between you and him will be this book, translucent. And he'll be looking at your eyes through the pages of this book, measuring your gaze through the truth. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it kind of sounds like you're going to want to do what this says right here. It kind of sounds like you're going to want to be faithful like this says to be faithful and worshipful and obey the gospel. He will come with his word and when he does, oh, surely he will never judge the believer's choices. Except he told us that's exactly what he's going to do. Open your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll look at these briefly. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. We must all, this isn't just just bad folks out there. It's not just those guys. All of us. And in fact, he's addressing Christians in the letter. All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now that takes more study that we don't have time to delve into today because I've done a lot of bad things that he has forgiven, but only because I obeyed him. You got me? He forgave my disobedience because I opened up the word and I obeyed him. I was baptized in water. I don't have to be baptized in water. Hey, let the Christian humanist act go away for a minute. Let's be real about this. If you do what he says, he will forgive your deeds. When we're baptized in water, our sins are forgiven. And if we're not, the word will judge you on the last day. Just want to talk about this. Is Jesus coming in judgment? Will he come with the word? Absolutely. Will he come determining our choices and weighing them? He just said so. And will he save only those who obey him? That's what the Bible says. And I want to finish with this. 2 Thessalonians will be great. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you know the verse, verses 7 and 8. It's talking about his coming. By the way, it doesn't matter where you are on this stage. Be wherever you want to be. Jesus is still coming. You believe whatever you want to believe and argue whatever you want to argue, you're still going to face judgment. And every single one will bow before him on that day, and this is what will happen. He will give relief to those who are afflicted, verse 7, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, verse 9. Away, scariest phrase in the New Testament for me. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You remember where we started this thing? Who remembers where we started? It was so long ago. We started in Ephesians 3. The power of God on you. Look at this verse again, verse 9. If you do not obey the gospel, if you do not live by the word, if you do not obey him, you will have his power pulled away from you. We're just sheep. I won't call you dumb again. People got insulted. But we don't know the way. You don't know the way. You don't know the way. You don't, oh, by the way, you don't know the way either. 
that this person wants the hand of God on them, the power of God upon their faith. I've just got a question for, for my friends who are believing in Jesus and doing what they want. Do you know that he is coming in judgment? The book of Galatians warns us about this. Galatians 1, you know this. It warns us about people who create the gospel that they want. They distort the gospel of Christ, Galatians 1. I like a lot of what the Bible says, but I also like a lot of what I, I was raised to believe what I want to do. The Apostle Paul told us in Galatians 1, I don't care if an angel comes levitating in the room with six wings. If they ever try to tell you anything different than what this says, they are to be rejected. This is what will judge you on the last day. I want our kids. They were here. We had like 120 young people. I hate to call them kids. They're not kids. I mean, look at Hector back there. That's not a kid. That's a young man. We had 125 young people here yesterday standing over here, standing there. This is where they got to stay. The world's pulling. The world's pulling on them. In the end, in the end, we have to defeat humanism in every form. How? By understanding and proclaiming with 100% certainty that there is a creator God, that he is the God of that book, and that his son is coming. And I will answer for my choices, and you will answer for yours. For those who believe this, there is nothing but blessing and power coming your way by the hand of God. If we can help you now, if you're ready, if you're tired of this walk, the foolishness of it revealed to you, it's time to get back. Jesus' arms are prepared, his power ready. Come now as we stand and sing.